Hey, before I jump in, I just want to say a big, give a big shout out to our, our music team. They've, our worship team's been doing an awesome job leading us and just so grateful. Today was just rich and Kate, I'm grateful for your leadership and the ways I see God continuing to grow your gifts and thanks for leading us in that way. We're in the, in the middle of a series. Uh, we're kicking off the beginning of the year talking about as a church, what is our focus? What is our mission? And it is to help people know, follow, and share Jesus, to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave us to go and make disciples of all people. To help people know Jesus is not just to know some dry religion. It's not just to know a bunch of do's and don'ts, but it's to have a relationship with God that he created us to have, to walk with him, um, to follow him. Um, to follow him means to learn, to, to live in the the rhythms in, in, of Jesus, to have his spirit work in us so that we live and walk with him and become like his apprentices. This is what discipleship is, to get, to get good at what Jesus was good at, right? To offer the healing and the hope to the world, to share Jesus ultimately. If you think about it, you cannot follow Jesus without sharing Jesus because Jesus' life was about sharing. It wasn't about himself, but it was him pouring himself out for the betterment of others. And so God is transforming the world, drawing people to him to have this relation. And he uses his church, he uses us as a vehicle, as a means to offer the hope and the healing of Jesus as he works through us. And so today I want to drill in on this, this simple question, how do you finish well? How do you finish well? I mean, none of us start off in life and say, like, I want to just really out of the gate, I want to be awesome, but I don't really care how I finish. Nobody remembers the 2012 Arizona Cardinals because they were 4-0 to start the season, but their, their record was, they didn't even make, make the playoffs by the end of the season, right? You, rem, you don't remember the ones who start well. I mean, heck, even the Texans won their first game this year, Right? <laughs> You, you don't remember those who start well. You remember those who finish the race. And it's not about us being remembered for something great. It's about us being full of the Holy Spirit so that we can endure all the challenges and the twists and turns of life. And so we can be faithful until that day when the Lord says to us. Because finishing well is not about having the most toys. It's not about getting to the end of life and look at my legacy or this or that, or things this world tells us it's about. Ultimately, I want to stand before my creator one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's only about my life. That's not, it's about how I used the days. It's not compared to someone else. It's about, were you faithful to the end to walk with God and to see him work through you? The good news is it's never too late to start, right? Um, but I want to start, I want to ask this question, like, where, what happens to prevent people from finishing well? Well-intended people. How can you finish well in this life? I read something interesting by Oswald Chambers, the, the great, uh, rich, 
uh, devotional guide that he wrote, but, but that we all uh, kind of are, maybe you're familiar with, my utmost for his highest. But he wrote a journal, and he left this journal, and there was a, 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 an excerpt from his journal that I loved where he had this encounter with a guy he said was just full of the Spirit and the most inspirational person, left a mark on his life, and he didn't see him again, and he always wished that he would be able to bump into this guy again, and it was about 10 years later, and he did finally run into this guy and was so excited to see him, but he says, in his words, he was garrulous and unenlivened 10 years later. What does it look like, and how does it happen for someone who is so inspirational because of their joy and their faith and the life that was in them 10 years later to look garrulous and unenlivened? I can barely say that, but garrulous and unenlivened. How does that happen? It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen um, in a day. It happens over time, I imagine, and it happens because we're challenged, because we face enemies of this kind of enduring faith. And I believe this is even more important today, to build this kind of resilient faith of lifelong followers of Jesus. Our goal is not, as a church, to just help people start well. It's not just to raise our teenagers to behave well in their teenage years, but it is to leave in them and in all of us, in every generation, a kind of faith that regardless of what twists and turns may come about, that they know where to turn. And they hold tight to their faith, and it's a lifelong kind of faith. This is our hope, and this is our desire as a church. And so we've been looking at the book of Philippians, um, and really at the heart of this letter from Paul, um, which by the way, I want to encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. I know I haven't said that a lot. I want to say that at the beginning of this year. Bring your Bible to church or crack your phone out. You know, you've got the Bible app right there. This is a great series to to kind of build that habit because we are really going like verse by verse by verse. We're not going to hit everything in Philippians, but we're going to walk through the high points and we're going to hit a lot of it. So I want to encourage you to take out uh, your Bible right now or open your phone and look up the passage because we're going to walk through it and I want you to see it and, and really just want to start by giving you a little context. Um, it's going to be quick context. If you really want more, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first couple of sermons of this series because we unpack this even in greater depth. Um, but Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi. It is a pastoral letter. When you're reading it, you need to realize he's writing it to a specific group of people in a specific place. And, and, and so he writes it about 10 years later, probably, there's some debate about that, but 10 years after Lydia's conversion. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts 16 when Lydia came to faith in Christ and she and her whole household were baptized and they started this church in Philippi. And it became this place where people were coming to Christ and finding hope. But along the way, they started to face trials and tribulations. And one of the greatest trials that they faced or tribulations that they faced or discouragements that they faced was that they knew that their leader, they knew the one who had planted and planted other churches, their inspiration, Paul, was now in prison. And he was awaiting trial. And it was possible, it was actually likely, that he would be executed. 
And so Paul is in prison 10 years after the plant of this church, and he's writing back to this church, and he wants to encourage them because his ultimate hope is that they would persevere, and he doesn't want his difficulties to in any way contribute to them falling away from the faith. And so there's this mutual concern for one another. The people in the church in Philippi are concerned about Paul, and Paul is concerned about them. And let me just start by saying this. There's real reason for them to be concerned for one another. Like there's real trouble and there's real reason to be, there's, this is not, it's not like there's nothing to be afraid of, but Paul somehow overcomes this, this fear that should have been logical for him. And he writes a letter that is extremely encouraging and hopeful. And we're going to see why, and we're going to see how he overcomes these adverse, these um, challenges or enemies of a lifelong, persistent, resilient kind of faith, but I think that they're similar enemies for us, and this is what I want us to do. I want us to be prepared for the possible enemies that might attack and prevent us from living out a lifelong faith. If you're here, then it's more than likely that that's your desire, but why is it that we don't finish well, and what can we do to prevent and prevent that from happening and be proactive? So the first the first enemy that we must overcome and that Paul talks about and addresses is adversity. The circumstances in our life, especially those out of our control, when they become difficult, they can easily cause us to lose heart. I think that's true for us, isn't it? It certainly was true. It was an enemy for Paul that he had to combat. It was an enemy for the Philippians. It was an obstacle. Perseverance was, a, was difficult, and, and it took an eternal perspective. It took a perspective beyond, to see beyond the immediate challenges in their life because adversity is a part of life. Listen to what he writes, verse 6, Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out on until, uh, to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God began the work, and Paul was part of the work, and he encourages them that God will continue what he started. If they cling to God, he will continue. He's saying, do not lose heart. Do not give up. Do not throw in the towel. Stay the course, and God will be faithful. And he says, he goes on in verse 9, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern, listen, discern what is best, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I'm in the NIV today, but I want to read what, how the NLT, the New Living Translation, translate this. And it, by the way, translate, we talked about the Bible a few weeks ago and, and kind of how to study the Bible. And somebody asked me after that sermon, like, which translation they should use. Should they use this one or this one? And my answer was yes. Like, actually, the best way to study the Bible, just, just to be clear, is to study multiple translations and look at how the translators are, are because, listen, it didn't drop down out of heaven in English to us, right? And so each translation shows you the nuance that, are, that if you look at them together, you can see the nuance. And I love, I love what the NLT, the New Living Translation, how it translates this. I want you to understand, Paul says, what really matters. I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. 
They are rightly concerned about Paul's safety. They know that, they're, that he is facing adversity. They know they are facing adversity. But Paul wants them to realize what really matters. What really matters? What does really matter for Paul? Well, he goes on in verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. He's saying that all of the bad things that have happened to him, the circumstances that he's in, the enemies that he's faced, the difficulty that he's had, have not set the gospel back. His whole mission, his whole purpose in life was to share Jesus with others. And Paul is not in prison wringing his hands saying, oh, woe is me. Paul is, is not in prison saying, God, he's not having prayer sessions every morning saying, God, if you'll just get me out of this jail cell, then I'll go and share you with the world. God, won't you just do that? You know what Paul's doing instead? Paul's there and he's like, that dude can't leave me. So I'm going to preach to him. He's trapped. Like, and, he, and he says the whole palace guard began to believe and be encouraged. And the brothers and sisters who were there, the, 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 these are all new converts to the faith. And you know, they have to look at Paul and they have to say, well, I don't want to end up there, so why would I follow Jesus? But they're looking at Paul and they're seeing the way that he is handling the adversity and it's actually doing the opposite. It's not discouraging them, it's encouraging them. Friends, sometimes your most difficult moments if you face them with faith and with courage and not with this kind of half, half-hearted or, 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 or just kind of wink at difficulty and pretend that it's not difficult, that's not what I'm saying. Some of us face real adversity and real challenges just like Paul did, just like the Philippians did. But when you face them with this, with, this, with this heart of God, I want, even in my difficulty, for you to shine, for you to be proclaimed, for the gospel to move forward, the same things will happen in our lives. And God will use the most difficult things, maybe even more so, to advance the gospel and the good news because we are people of hope and we remember what really matters. And so Paul says, I will continue to rejoice. He's not in prison saying, oh, isn't it great? The accommodations here are wonderful. You know, he's not saying, like, it's not this, to, to, to follow Jesus means I get to suffer. It's not what he's saying. He's not rejoicing that he's suffering. He's rejoicing that God would use even his suffering to point people to the hope that he has in Jesus. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit in Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. How can he celebrate? How can he have this kind of perspective? Because you don't just wake, wake up and say, God, I want to have that kind of perspective when you're going through things. Paul's been doing things that have led to this place. And one of the things that he points to are the prayers of others. Who do you have? Who are your 2, your 2 a.m. friends? You know what 2 a.m. friends? They're those kind of friends you could call at 2 a.m. Don't call me at 2 a.m. because I probably won't wake up. But I, did I say that? Like... Like, who's the, who are those friends? I, there, are people, there are people that I know I could call anytime, and I'm just joking. You know you could call me anytime. In fact, can we put my phone? No, don't put my phone number. 
But seriously, it's not about 2 a.m. call, right? But who are the people that any time, whatever it is, you have those kinds of friends that when you're going through difficulty, you can go to them and they're going to help shoulder the burden. They're going to pray with you, but it's not an inconvenience. They're actually going to be a part of your life in a way that brings you through a difficult situation and circumstance in your life and helps you to live a resilient kind of faith. You, you can't wait until trouble hits to develop those kinds of friends. You have to invest in those kind of friendships now, and you have to pray for one another, and ultimately it's not how can I get friends like that, but when you offer to be a friend like that, it's mutually beneficial. But somehow, Paul rejoices because of the prayers of people around him who he knows they're in this together. And he prays, he says, because of the Holy Spirit's power at work in him. So he's relying on the strength of God, but that, that strength of God is also working through the community of believers. And this is why this is so important for us as a church, to be this kind of place. Because life will be difficult. It's not always going to be easy. And a lot of times we've bought into this lie that life should be easy. Paul, Paul had everything going for him until he met Jesus. And then when he met Jesus, in the eyes of the world, everything kind of went. You would think he'd get the VIP treatment, but he doesn't. Right? He starts getting beaten like the people, you know, Paul was a persecutor of Christians before. And now he's the one being persecuted. And what is it about us that we believe that when we follow Jesus that everything should be easy? Now, listen, I'm not going around looking for difficulty in my life. Don't hear me say that. Like, easy's okay sometimes. Anybody with me? Like, a little easy would be all right. Right? But here's the problem. We've, we've come to expect that if it's not easy, something's wrong. That's just life. Life is messy sometimes. And God never promises that when we follow Jesus, that life will just get easy for us. In fact, he, he says, my, my burden is light. Yes, you can come to me with your burdens, and I will give you strength, and I will give you I will give you courage, and I will give you faith if you rely on me. But he never says, I will make your, your, your path uh, uh, easy. He never says it will always be comfortable or it won't be complicated. Nobody that's playing, you know, there's two football games to decide who's going to go to the Super Bowl today. But you're going to come to stay at the church, so you're going to record one of them, right? So, but nobody that's in that game said at the beginning of their career, I want to have an easy career. They wanted to accomplish something. And they were willing to work. If they're there, they were willing to work. And listen, sometimes it didn't work out. I mean, Tom Brady's at home watching, right? It's not about easy, but life isn't easy all the time. And Jesus didn't have an easy path, and Paul didn't have an easy path. But somehow, they're still willing and able to go through with what God has called them to do with faith and perseverance. And Paul is somehow able to rejoice in spite of the circumstances. Why? Because God uses those circumstances to further the gospel. Because what really matters, what really matters at the end of the day is not, being, is not life being easy. Paul goes on, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed 
but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's one of, one of the most memorable lines in, in this letter. Paul says, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul says the best thing for him personally would be to go, what does that tell you about the difficulties in Paul's life? If he's, if he's saying death is better, <laughs> right? He's not saying it's easy. But he's saying, as long as I live, I'm going to give glory to God in everything that I do. And so for you, it's better. He's writing to the Philippians saying, you know, if I die, that's actually better for me. So don't worry about me. But if I remain around here, guess what? It's better for you because I'm going to continue to proclaim. It's better for the church because I'm going to continue to do this work of pointing people to Jesus. How can we live that kind of life to see, to reframe the adversity in our lives? Okay, we've got to get to the second one. Adversity and then competing allegiances because they have to start with A's today, and I want you to remember them. But So work with me here a little bit, right? Allegiances, other competing allegiances that, that, are, that are competing for your allegiance to Christ. There will be things that, that can tempt you to turn to the right or the left in your walk with Christ. And you need to be prepared for that reality. That there are other things. If life is not easy and if walking out our faith makes it maybe even sometimes a little more difficult, then why would we expect there not to be this pull in our hearts to live for ourselves instead of live for Christ? To go after things for ourselves and try to get more instead of give away more like he calls us to do. Listen, here's the truth. The truth is all temptation, all temptation, I believe all temptation is rooted in this affection, the allure of things that compete for our allegiance to God. So in other words, all temptation at its heart, at its core, at, at its simplest, in its simplest form, all temptation is really a decision. Do I put myself ahead of God? Or do I put God ahead of myself. Every temptation is a temptation to put yourself ahead of what God wants for you. And when you know what God wants for you is really the best for you, then you're willing to put your own desires or your own feelings or all of those other things aside, and you're able to live for something greater than yourself because you know in the end it is what really matters and it is all that will matter, all that will last. Paul says this, he says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves, listen, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. He's saying the way that you walk out your life, the way that you follow Jesus does matter. It does matter because it is part of how you give witness. Because if you're witnessing to the one who laid his life down for you, then it's not just enough to just say that. You actually must live as if now you are a citizen of heaven. If you are a citizen, if your citizenship is in heaven, listen, this is not intended to, this is taken out of context sometimes, like, like our citizenship is in heaven and so nothing here matters. That's not what Paul's saying. 
Paul's saying, if you are a citizen of heaven, that's where your identity is, then you conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven here and now because it gives witness to others around you. And you, you know, all of us have been adopted into this family. We've been given this great gift of eternal life. And so then how do you live in a way that leads others? How do you lay down your life? How do you live? Like, it's, it's like the mom who doesn't really like the sport that her kid picks, right? Maybe she doesn't really like soccer and her kid signs up for soccer, And all of a sudden, though, what is she? She's a soccer fan all of a sudden, right? Her whole motive and everything changes. Why? Because her kid's in the game. And now she's going nuts and spitting on people and doing all kinds of crazy things. And, you know, like that referee better not mess that up. Like she didn't care before, but now she cares. And when we encounter God's grace, it's what it does. It radically shifts and changes our priorities. And what we really care about becomes what God cares about. Paul uses different language for followership here than he uses in a lot of his other letters. In a lot of his other letters, he uses the verb is walk with Christ. But here, he uses citizenship language. Because the Philippian church was full of of patriotic people. They were, a lot of them were ex-military, and they retired there. They had served in the Roman Roman military, and they were living in Philippi. And so Paul is thinking, how do I communicate what it is to be allegiant to Christ? How do I communicate what it is to live as a follower of Jesus? And he says, I know these people will understand this, because if you are a citizen, if you are a soldier, if you are employed as as a representative of the state in which you live, and you embrace that charge and that calling, guess what you do? You put the good of the country ahead of your own, and you are willing to even sacrifice your life to advance the mission of that land you are serving. And so he says to them, Your ultimate citizenship is in heaven, so live like it. Abandon your selfish desires and instead live for a greater purpose. Live for something greater than yourself. And friends, this is the heart. This is the heart of every temptation is to lay that aside and to seek my own way instead of Christ's way. And so we have to be ready for competing allegiances because they will cut in and prevent us from finishing well if we're not careful. The last one that Paul mentions is literally adversaries. Now, I know, I said adversity and adversaries, it's really from the same word, right? And adversaries are a type, adversaries are a type of adversity, right? But I want this to be clear, and Paul wants them to understand too. What does he say in verse 28? He says, Paul said, it says, Paul said, uh, Paul says this, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies, don't be intimidated by, in any way about, uh, by your enemies. You know, we've talked about this internal battle of te- temptation. We've talked about the external circumstances that we can't control. But I think it's important for us to acknowledge that sometimes there are people. There are people who will stand in our way as followers of Jesus. There are people who, who are mean-spirited, who maybe just are antagonistic, maybe actually evil. Sometimes there are evil forces in this world, and sometimes they do cause people to hurt other people. Look, sometimes you're going to hurt other people. <laughs> sometimes other people are going to hurt you. 
Like, it's just part of our human nature, right? And so don't be, don't be discouraged, Paul's saying, because people, because you have enemies. Don't be discouraged. Listen, Jesus had enemies, didn't he? How did he treat his enemies? He didn't back down from them. He wasn't intimidated by them. He walked to the cross in the face of his enemies. But he fought the battle differently than, than a lot of others would have fought the battle. And the question you have to ask is, what would Jesus do? Now, now I know we used to wear the, anybody, some of you don't remember the bracelets and all that stuff, WWJD. Really, what I want to add to that is, what would Jesus do if he was you? Because that's what followership of Jesus really is. Jesus lived in the first century in the Middle East, so he did certain things. Like, what would Jesus do if he lived where you lived, if he worked where you worked, if he was parenting your kids? Some of you are like, oh. (laughs) What would Jesus do if he were in your shoes, if he were a parent on your kid's sports team? What would Paul do if he were in your shoes? Likely, none of us are going to be in prison for our faith. I mean, There are still people that do go to prison for their faith today, but likely that's not going to happen for you. But how do you turn the adversity? How do you turn and pray for your adversaries? How do you prepare and equip yourself to overcome these competing allegiances and temptations? Listen, Paul had struggles. The Philippians had struggles. You will have struggles. I have struggles. Ultimately, Jesus faced the struggles for us, and he died on the cross that we might overcome them. And what would he want to say to us? How do we overcome all of these things? He goes on in the very end of chapter 1, and he says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Like there's this privilege to suffering, because not because suffering is good or you would invite it or ask for it, but because if you are suffering, then you are in good company with Jesus. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Therefore, like anytime there's a therefore, you got to ask what it's there for because it's about to be important, right? All this other stuff. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and the one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Listen, this is what he's saying. He's saying, if Jesus has made any difference in your life, and then he personally is saying to them, if I've made any difference in your life, and if my suffering does anything for you, then do this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each the interests of others. In other words, when you face adversity, when you face temptation, when there are adversaries in your life, find ways to serve. Find ways to love others. Seek to be at peace with all people. But in everything, adversity, good, bad times, whatever your circumstance, always put God's will first, his mission first, because your most difficult moments may be the greatest opportunities for you to be a witness to others. 